everyone, and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda. And I am Sile. I am Dr. Elizabeth Menden. I'm an associate professor of marketing at the University of Wyoming. My main area of research looks at religion's influence on consumption and really this whole idea of how core value systems drive consumer decision-making. So my work experience is in rural development and in tourism marketing back in Alaska. Um, and it kind of stems from seeing tourists from all over the world come with very different value systems and different things that they're looking for. And to say, we don't actually know a lot about how that influences decision-making um, and then how marketers or companies are using that in their advertising. So that's, it really kind of drove me to do a master's degree and then a PhD. And that's what I research today. And uh, for many of the listeners, and please correct me, Elizabeth, but you recently had a PhD student under yourself who in her first year was able to release a thesis, a paper that was published in a very renowned journal. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I I find that every student I work with, no matter what they're interested in, we kind of like merge religion into it somehow because that value system can drive whether we're talking about sustainability or financial decision making or well-being or response to advertisements. Like it can relate to just about anything. What are values? Like what can we define it so that it's easier for us to kind of understand? And specifically personal values rather than the public value system, but yeah, personally for each individual. The term value carries many different meanings. I want to start off by saying when we define marketing, that value is actually in the definition of marketing, which is basically offering a good or service through an exchange process that delivers value to the consumer. The values that I look at are very different from offering value to a consumer. That is the marketing process. So when we talk about values, on the other hand, personal values in particular, we're looking at basically core beliefs, traits, things that a person really places a lot of emphasis on that are guiding decision makers for daily decision making as well as more higher involvement decision making. Can you give us just one example of that? So there's a lot of different value lists actually out there. Things like the list of values and uh, who I worked under at the University of Oregon he developed the list of values like fun and engagement in life or looking at um, novelty or things like sense of security and safety. And those are different values that people can hold. In my research, I look more specifically at religious values. I use the term belief systems more broadly because people can hold belief systems that are more spiritual based as well or sustainability based that incorporates values that are beyond just being prescribed in a specific religious doctrine. You mentioned this theory of mind and how humans see transparency, especially when they're buying a particular product. Can mm -hmm. you define the theory of mind for me? Yeah, so it's the ability to understand the intentions of others, which is kind of like when I say that, it sounds kind of complex. A general example is, let's say a marketer is trying to sell you cookies and they're like, oh, these cookies are delicious and they're, they've got enough whole, whole wheat flour that's going to be nutritious to you in some way. And so the question is, do you believe what the marketer tells you? Or do you stop and say, what are the intentions of the marketer? Are they just trying to sell me the product? Or do they actually have my best interests in mind or trying to give me a product that's healthy and nutritious? I feel like there's a really short time between someone bringing cookies, let's say, for example, 
and you making your decision up whether you want to get it or not, there's a small window where you can figure out the intentions of the market here. I don't generally do that as much. So how do you make yourself do that before making a decision? Part of the question is, you say you don't do it, but do you really? Because a lot of this is subconscious and it happens without you even thinking about it. As you're like, oh, why are they doing this? It's like, no, you grab it, but you may in the back of your mind be already making different decisions. How you would do it is you'd say, why? It's just like if you went back to a three-year-old kid who's always like, why, 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 why? Just walk in the store and be like, why are they doing this? Just have that sense of curiosity about life. And um, really a lot of what this podcast is about is asking like, why are things happening? And so just taking that curiosity out into the store when you're shopping and saying, why are they doing this? To be honest, there's so much competition now out there as well, right? So it's not like you've just got one option. There are so many options. And so they're all trying to be like, no, but mine's better. Oh, but mine's better. But mine's better. And so I guess now it's almost like they're trying to work on your emotions as well. Would you say that a lot of consumerism has a, like changed over time or do you think that it's about, it's stayed the same? Oh, I definitely think it's changed. And as you all were talking about earlier with experiences and how they're trying to form it into an experience, that's a huge shift in marketing is saying, how can we go more towards experience-based marketing, getting the consumer involved in the process, rather than this idea of we're just pushing content at the consumer and we're trying to sell product. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot with movies. There's a lot what you call product placement. And this is going into, I guess, subconscious marketing, right? So could you talk a little bit about that as well? And with subconscious marketing and priming, How effective is that? And do you think that we even realize that it's happening when it's happening? What the hell is priming? I feel like I'm a dog. Like when someone (laughs) says I'm being primed for something. (laughs) So priming is the whole idea that we activate a concept in your mind. If you've ever had an experience where you're with somebody and someone says something like, oh man, I haven't thought about that in like 10 years. And for me, did you all ever know Muzzy? Like the dinosaur that taught languages 10, 15 years ago? No. Okay. But someone said to me, I'm like, Muzzy, I'm like, where did that come from? I haven't heard that word in 15 years. So you have all these nodes in your mind. And if someone says something that activates one of those nodes, that primes you. That's the whole idea. It just like activates it. And all of a sudden you're thinking about it and it activates all the connecting nodes in your mind as well. So anything that was attached to those memories, it can bring those memories back. The whole idea of priming and marketing is it's kind of twofold. It's one is marketers use it to activate certain concepts, whether we want to activate your deception awareness to say, what are the marketers doing or from a a policy standpoint, or can we activate you to think about healthy decision-making or sustainability, or I really want to eat cookies and chocolate right now. That's kind of on the marketing side. But then in the research side of things, we use priming to kind of validate what we're examining. Let's say I'm looking at the relationship between theory of mind and your purchase of these cookies. Well, if I measure your theory of mind and I measure your uh, likelihood to purchase the cookies, then I can just, okay, yeah, they're correlated, but does correlation mean causation? So we prime the concept to say, okay, we're influencing this. So therefore we can determine that that's actually what's causing this other effect. And in terms of theory of mind, I love watching Shark Tank. I love the British version of it called Dragon's Den. And a lot of times, a very common one is there'll be products like, say, beauty products that'll say 
this product is completely cruelty-free, right? And they really go deep into it to find out the transparency on what it says on the product. And a lot of times, even if they're hesitant about it, the shark doesn't end up taking them on board. How important is it for companies to be transparent with their consumer? And how does it work in terms of theory of mind? That's incredibly important, especially for consumers that have a higher theory of mind because they want to answer the question why. And that information is supplying the answer. Now, there are some situations where people are under cognitive load, as we call it, which basically means your mind is preoccupied, that you don't have the capability to assess all of this information. And sometimes having too much information can be overwhelming in that sense. It's like when you go to the Chinese restaurant and you open up the menu and it's like, there's a hundred choices on the menu. And you're like, what do I get? (laughs) And you kind of just like, in the research actually shows if we had a five item menu, consumers would be happier because they don't have all this cognitive Mm -hmm. effort being put forth to try to decide what to eat. And I I actually do think that there's a cultural element to it because I find that in Asian restaurants, especially, they love having a variety. If you go to an Indian restaurant, people think Indian food is just North Indian food, but there's North Indian, South Indian, East Mm. Indian. Then there's Chinese Indian, which not a lot of people know. Mm. And you hear Mm. about these dishes, which you'll only eat in India, and they're somehow Chinese Indian. But it's that idea of having so many choices, but it makes a restaurant look like, oh, it's for the whole family. You can eat whatever you want rather than having five choices there. And it's a very Mm. cultural phenomena, I think, Mm. as well. And I find this very interesting because when I go to the grocery store with, say, Huda or I go with my mom, they end up going through every aisle and I just cannot go through every aisle. Like, I just want to get the shit I want and get the hell out of there. But I see people Mm -hmm. spending hours and hours just going through aisles and just checking out what's going on. Are there any new products? And I get so (laughs) overwhelmed. It's like analysis paralysis, I get cognitive load. And that actually reminds me. So I have to tell you the backstory of how I got looking at theory of mind in the first place. So if I go back to my comprehensive exams in my PhD program, which are the most awful set of exams you'll ever take in your life, I think. <laughs> uh, and I was like 24 hours of working on this. And I told my husband, I'm like, go get me something healthy. I don't care what it is. Just get me something healthy. And he comes back from the store with a package of cookies and a bag of fried chips. And I'm like, what the heck? This is not healthy. <laughs> and so I was like, well, the chips are in a tan package. And I thought tan was healthy. And wow. the cookies that we're going to donate a portion of the proceeds to the American Heart Association so that you eat the cookies after you get your blood drawn because your sugar gets low. And he's like, these are healthy for you. Oh, my I'm gosh. Like, that's OK. Here is my dissertation research. That's where theory of mind came out of. Because I'm like, why is my husband doing this? <laughs> that's actually hilarious. I love that he's justified the packet color, too. Yeah, yeah. I never thought of that. But, but it makes sense. It actually makes sense. It gives it that organic look. The study that I found really interesting was you worked out the relationship between luxury goods versus religiosity and moral values. So can you talk about what you found out in research and also how you define luxury goods? So I think one thing just to make clear is a lot of times if I say to somebody, oh, I look at religion's influence on consumption and their response is normally, oh, that probably makes them like a more moral consumer. And like, sure, it does in some instances, but there's also there's so many nuances to it, which is kind of where this luxury research comes into play is that if we actually look at a lot of religious scripture, there is a lot of luxury used in religious scripture. When we look at the use of gold and other and other mm. things and 
it's things like that that signify, okay, well, it really could go both ways, that if you're more religious, you could be aiming more towards luxury products, or it could go the other way. And so what we were looking at is religiosity via mentions. And so we'll, a lot of times we'll characterize people as intrinsic or extrinsic religiosity. Intrinsic being more like, what do you believe and do without other people looking at you? And then extrinsic is more, what are you doing for show? The typical example would be someone that goes to a church, a synagogue, any kind of religious establishment to make relationships. And then they can use that as potentially a sales tactic. If we go to like the extreme version of it. I related a lot to social media. If you look at the people on social media, you notice how everyone is happy all the time. Like, look at this great thing that just happened and this great thing. And then if you get to know them, they're like, I have all this trauma in my life and I've had these things happen. And it's like, who's the person on social media? Because that's not you. So is that the, um, the external one that you were talking about? Extrinsic. Extrinsic. Yeah, exactly. So the extrinsically religious person is the person that has an image they want to exude. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're doing. That's the purpose for religion is to use it to exude some kind of image or for personal gain. Mm-hmm. Um, the okay. intrinsic religious person is the absolute opposite. They are not doing it all for other people. They're doing it personally for themselves. And their religion is really for their own spiritual connection to their divine being. But what I find is that we're always told to stay away from you know materialistic things. And mm-hmm. you know that's, it's always... You have to give up, especially we have this idea of nirvana mm-hmm. or like, you know, when you've had your seven rebirths and you finally go to, you're at peace. Mm-hmm. It's all about giving up all the materialistic things and, you know, you become a monk. There's a place in India, in North India, where people hike up. It's really high up in the mountains. It's for a particular god. And there's a full room, which is about two stories high. That's just full of gold. That's mm-hmm. just people give gold. Give, away give yeah gold give gold away. as like a mm-hmm. way of giving to the religion right giving back interesting but that gold is just lying there it's never like I, I i don't know maybe it is but personally i have never seen it being used to help the poor like on one hand it says you know give up on all materialistic things but at the other hand it's also about giving up gold up to god you know at what point do you go i'm gonna leave this materialistic thing but also i need to do this it's it's a very mm. conflicted idea Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what's fascinating is that we say, oh, well, religious people shouldn't have any materialistic desires. But yet you look at the whole market of religious goods that are supposed to support your religious journey. Mm. And so it really isn't purely anti-materialistic. We do have a theory, I just want to throw this out there, um, terror management theory, which is the whole idea that as you get older and you get closer to death or you're reminded of death, you're more likely to do things to try to secure your position on earth. Mm -hmm. Um, And religious people are supposed to be less likely to try to purchase things to secure their position on earth. But that's particularly interesting right now with COVID is more people are thinking about death with COVID reminding of them of that constantly. And so that suggests this idea of we need to buy things again, to feel a physical connection to earth because we're scared of what's going to happen afterwards. I can't tell you if the whole toilet paper thing has something to do with it, but I've wondered. Yeah, that is actually really funny to to me because everybody who wasn't doing it was baffled. If you think of what your greatest fear is in life, and for a lot of people that's to die, your second greatest fear, a lot of times you have to think of like, what is the most intimate thing that you do regularly? It's 
probably going to the bathroom is mm-hmm. and so it's like okay you have fears of whether it's someone walking in or you running out of what you need or you crapping your pants in public like whatever it is like that is something that happens so regularly that it's constantly on your mind and obviously you have to eat to live so those are if you think of the most common things you do those are going to be our greatest fears when all of a sudden our fear of death is primed in our mind so we've got a primed sense of fear and so our other fears are coming out at the same time so in the priming literature we call this spreading activation theory and so if we go back to a node in your mind is being activated so we've activated the fear node in your mind and so that spreads to all related concepts so all of a sudden fear is activated you need to go to the bathroom and so you're thinking okay what fears are associated because you your fear is activated from this covid and death and everything wow yeah what I've kind of noticed in Melbourne at the moment, there's this big fear that AstraZeneca is not a good vaccine for people. And so I've started noticing there's like signs, especially in the city, about how we should take the vaccine, but they've made it really cool. It's like there's a big V and they go all for the big and then the big V as in to be like, you know, the vaccine and they've got all the like... Without all... saying the word vaccine. Yeah, yeah, because at the moment it's such an, in, you know, st- scary word. But I feel like in a way it's like, you know, there's posters just everywhere and obviously a lot of the time when we're driving. But if you're driving and you just see it, you're not really thinking about it, but it enters your subconscious and then automatically I feel like you're kind of going to be like, oh, it's actually associated with something really cool or something really good. But what comes to mind as you're talking about that, I mean, we go back to priming again. Mm. And if you think that you have this concept of a vaccine that it sounds like people are not very positive towards, and then you have these people that they are very positive towards. And if we can partner them together and we basically transfer the, the positive affect from the person to the vaccine, that's what they're trying to do. And we can do that through different types of priming, but one is repetition priming. So if you see it once, you're like, well, I'm not going to remember that. If you drive by that every single day, seeing it 30 times, eventually that transfer is going to start happening. And that's exactly what this whole Pavlov's dog thing that a lot of people have probably heard about is they presented the food, they had a bell, uh, the dog salivated. Eventually they rung the bell, they removed the food and the dog still salivated. So if we can Mm -hmm. eventually make the vaccine associated with these people, you're going to have that positive affect associated with the vaccine. And then you remove the people reference and people are more positive towards the vaccine. That's the whole theoretical idea behind that. Do you find, Elizabeth, that fear is a much bigger promoter of selling something rather than the added benefit of something? Yeah. So that's the whole idea of like the half empty, half full glass that people actually have different personality styles. And we call it prevention or promotion focused. So you can be a prevention focused person. You're more focused on the fear. Those kind of advertisements are going to be more effective for you. But then you also have a big chunk of people that are more promotion focused. They want to know what the benefits are and that's why they're going to be motivated. So you do have to develop two different types of advertising for these two different categories of people. And how effective is it telling people, yes, these are the benefits, but also side effects? So that opens up a whole new topic of discussion, but Mm -hmm. the whole pharmaceutical advertising realm where the side effects are always listed while you see like the people eating ice cream cones and the balloons and the happy dogs in order to distract you from listening to the side effects. So there's a lot of lawsuits and regulation that's going on, at least in the States right now, about saying, 
yes, you have to put the side effects in there, but you've got to match the, like, the emotions of the visuals need to match what's going on with the side effects. It's like, and death. And here's this kid smiling, eating ice cream. It's like, no, that's not and death. Broadening that idea a bit, I see the most amount of money spent in advertising, especially when it comes to TV, is insurance companies. And Mm. insurance companies tend to have the best commercials because it's about everything except insurance. Mm -hmm. Because people find that so boring. And at the end, there's like... (laughs) It is pretty boring. (laughs) Yeah. And at the end, it's like really fast text. You know how they talk about... At the very end, yeah. At the very end. The terms and conditions. Yeah, the terms and conditions. You can't even hear it. And you're like, whoa, okay, 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 okay. I'll buy it. Whoa, what? Have you done any work on that or research on that and had any interesting findings? From the research that I've read, yeah, they're using a lot of different tactics to really attract the consumer. Car insurance, that's a huge area of advertising right now. And a lot of it is trying to use more kind of the flash techniques to attract you in. Um, we kind of call it the the steak or the sizzle a lot of times in marketing. So you have the steak, it's like selling the meat of the idea, the information, the background. Um, the sizzle is like, how can we make this super flashy? And you're like, oh, look at that like cute gecko that's kind of dancing across the screen. The camel's like, all day. And you're like, okay, well, apparently I need that. <laughs> look, personally, I'm not one of those people that actually buys a lot of things. I mean, food's a different story for me. I buy different types of food because I'm always wanting to try something different. Mm-hmm in that way and that's kind of I guess what you would call my personal value I think influencers at the moment are a huge one especially when it comes to like social media yes social media stuff you know like if you wear this you will look this beautiful or if you wear this you'll and that's how they sell and then you've got all these um big companies like clothing companies and makeup companies that often sponsor them do you think we've become more aware of those things in terms of our own values or do you think that we're actually getting further away from our values as social media grows social media is really about having a sense of belonging and that is a core desire of every human being we can go back to evolutionary psychology to describe why that's the case but we're all trying to belong in some way. And when you're talking about values, so there's an exercise we do a lot of times to try to determine what your core value is. And I want to just walk it, walk you through it so you can mm-hmm. see what this looks like. Tell me, what is the last thing you bought? Uh, so I'm vegan, so I got vegan sausages. Why did you buy vegan sausages? I love animals and it's better for the environment. So being vegan was a choice and now I'm trying to find alternatives. And why is it important to you to be better for the environment? Because I think there's a higher purpose to us being on this planet rather than just living our lives doing a job. And I think it's important for us to conserve this planet that's been given to us. So why do we need to conserve the planet? Because I think right now we are fucking it up majorly. (laughs) Uh, Global warming is on the rise and the amount of animals, livestock that we have is I mean, scientific research has proved that it causes a great deal of carbon emissions. Animals are, livestock is actually the biggest source of carbon emissions and agriculture more than coal and mining and all those things. Why does that matter? If I have kids or any future generations, actually, I'm not sure if I want kids, but future generations (laughs) too, we we leave them a, a better place than we came in. I don't want to be selfish. So now we've gotten down to the core value. So this is called basically means and chain analysis. And we say, how can we keep asking you why, 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 why until we get to a core value? And it sounds like family and community is really important. And being an honest, humble person is important. 
So those are core values that then we can take into the marketing realm and say, how do we communicate that this product is providing the, providing for these core values? Oh, yeah, that's wow. pretty good. That's pretty good. That got you. A lot of times when we talk about market research, that's what companies are doing is they're saying, why are you buying this? And the first answer someone gives you is usually not why they're actually buying it. When you go out, it's usually the basic value, isn't it? Like it's, an, it's, it's the basic need. You've got to do this or you've got to, or you think you've got to do this. It's that extrinsic need versus the intrinsic need. It's like extrinsically, yeah, this will be this, this, this. I'm doing it for the environment. But intrinsic is I actually want to, I care about community and family. Hmm. So that's an extrinsic versus intrinsic value. I did have a, uh, a question about religiosity and especially things that are not mentioned in religious texts. Like say something like vaccine, for example. I'm not sure it's definitely not mentioned in our religious texts at all. How do you make a decision on those things when people use religion as a guide to buy things? Mm -hmm. And if it's not mentioned, how do we go about it then? One of the big things there is who is interpreting religious texts today. And a lot of the times that's wherever they're getting, they're going to weekly services or they're listening to podcasts or things like that. And those people are interpreting core values or core messages into the context of vaccines or whatever it may be today. That's a big area. Um, and one kind of interesting thing about that. So I did publish some research on relation to COVID and religion and finding that religion, the more religious you are, that those were some of the people that were actually more likely to hoard goods and stock up on goods for the pure reason that they were more disrupted than the non-religious in, in response to COVID because religious services had stopped occurring and they mm. hadn't gone to the virtual services yet. And so these people not only face the disruption of work, but they face disruption of one of the things that was the greatest source of stability and comfort in their lives. Um, and so they're saying, well, how can I accommodate for that even more so than some of these other people? On the other hand, I know one of his students who's doing her PhD, she did about mental health of people who were more religious during the pandemic as compared to people who weren't. And what were the findings? Well, it varied. So for some people, mental health was lower in the sense that they didn't have the stability. But then we also found that religious people were more likely to exercise in response to the pandemic. So they're looking to other sources of coping. So we all cope with things in some way. And so they're saying, okay, faith, we don't have as much access to that. So maybe we can turn to something else to cope and we can exercise more. A lot of times you might be like, that, that doesn't seem right. But we actually got Fitbit data and we got used the step counter app on their phones and we looked at their levels of religiosity and figured it out in that way. So we're using better better quality data than um, we might have been able to do from some other sources. Wow. So they actually, so you're saying that they exercise more because they were more stressed and that was a way of relieving their stress? We didn't fully tap into exactly why, okay. but our hypothesis is the fact that their normal source of coping was not available for them as much. Okay. So they were more disrupted as a result of religious services not being available, of just feeling a sense of disconnection, yeah. disconnection with their their strong uh, belonging group in, inside yeah. of a religious institution. And so they're taking to other sources of coping more as a result. That's one hypothesis. It could also be that they have more coping resources and so they're turning to something more positive as a result. 
wouldn't it be now that there's more like, I guess, atheists or people that are more spiritual and they don't really, or is that not true? It really depends how you define it. As you start bringing in spirituality in the discussion of spirituality versus religion and how are these different, uh, the statistics from the Pew Research Foundation, which is a pretty reputable organization for um, a variety of research, they're still showing religiosity rates anywhere between 60 and 80% of people. Um, and that factors in that you have a lot of people that are at least saying that they're religious sometimes, but it doesn't drive every single decision that they're making. Um, but when we incorporate people that are spiritual, that believe that there is some, they feel some sort of afterlife, they don't know if there's a divine being or something to that extent, um, we're talking definitely the majority of people are spiritual or religious in some way. Mm-hmm. And it's changing. I think that's what you're getting at. It's changing yeah. from a very organized religion, everyone is going and practicing the same religion, to much more customized and to almost a greater diversification of beliefs. If you're saying that, you know, we're, we're moving towards a more spiritual or whatever it might be that may, you know, people that often feel as if they're not sure what's out there, but, you know, they, they believe there's something bigger out there than them. Would you say that the methods of marketing to them in terms of what they normally would use for religiosity, like as in back mm-hmm. when, you know, like oh, maybe making something sound like it's, it's better for you for some aspect, would it be about the same across the board? Or do you think that like there's a different type of method involved? Yeah, I would definitely say I think it's different in the sense that if you believe that there is a divine being that is kind of watching over you in a sense, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to act differently than if you think you're one with the spirits. So are you, do, you, do you sense that there could be a source of retribution if you do a certain behavior? Um, that might be more fear-motivated behavior. And even within the same religion, there can be people that believe that their divine being is more loving or more fear-inducing, and that's going to change the way that we market towards them. I have another question that I was thinking about, and Khola and I were talking about this. So she is in a job. Can you tell her what your job is? So um, I'm an inspector for um, venues that sell alcohol and gambling I guess, like, so pubs and, you know, so what I do is I basically go there and regulate them legally. So ensure that they're doing all the right things. All right. I'm glad you defined that just to give us some reference point. Melbourne is the only city in the world which has had more than 220 days of uh, lockdown than any other place in the world. And what was really curious to me is that alcohol shops were open throughout, right? It's essential service. So not in terms of pubs, but no, just b- bottlers. Bottlers or like shops that sell alcohol. So, yeah. yeah. And I thought that, you know, with the first lockdown when it happened, people, a lot more people were buying alcohol. But you spoke to a person who you, you went yeah, to a Yeah, I spoke to someone who um, quite recently, we were just at a bottle um, and I'll, you know, you know, you talk to them and they're like, oh, you know, how's business? Um, and they said that it's slowly, it's slowed down significantly. They're like, people are just over it. They're over drinking. They're over sitting around. The sales have actually gone down, which I found really interesting. I thought people would be so frustrated even more staying at home. They would even get more and more. But it actually went the other way around. Have you, have you found that in the US as well? Hmm, that's interesting. I haven't. But it, what does come to mind is it's kind of like when the, 
when COVID initially happened and everyone went home, we're like, yes, we're not in the office. We get a break. You know, we don't have the people stopping by the door, talking to us constantly, we're going to get more work done. And and then after a while, we all have this, this, like, this sense of belonging desire and we're not talking to other people as much and we're missing that. And we start realizing like you step on the scale. Oh, I gained 15 pounds because I'm just sitting around the house, not doing anything. And I do think there's a sense, and this is without any research, so take that into consideration, but I think there's a sense of, I need to actually do something with my life and like not be, just be this kind of like drunkard that's gaining a lot of weight. And as, at least in the States, as things are opening back up, like I'm back in the office for the first time. Now we have to show our face in front of everyone else. And if we look like a totally different person than when we went into the pandemic, mm. all of a sudden there's shame associated with that. It's funny how now that people are away from everything and they're kind of sitting at home, they've started questioning their life a lot more. It's like they've got the chance now to sit there and actually be with themselves. And I, I think what companies have done is they've gone in a big way to online shopping. Mm. And all the marketing has become online. And I find, find this very interesting. And I don't know if, if this is a thing that you you probably wouldn't have looked in, but I think you probably find this curious. Is Say we're talking now about a particular product that Elizabeth, I, and we're talking about on the podcast. And now if you go on our Instagram, mm. an ad shows up for that. Yeah, is there a phones, thing? It's the algorithms. Is there an algorithm for that? Is our phone listening to us? How does that work? It's really <laughs> creepy is all I'm saying. Is it like, marketing companies are are they doing that like they probably buy data from google and stuff so to market better i when i talk about kind of data ethics in my classes i always talk about data warehouses that are purely there to buy and sell our information and so how does ethics work in in your field of work what is considered ethical or not ethical in terms of what companies use to market a product there's a huge difference between the ethical laws and ethical behavior So obviously the laws are setting a bare minimum and behavior is way above that as far as what people should be doing. And I always ask, like for my students, I always ask them, what would you be comfortable if you saw like what your kid's doing? If they were doing that, would you be okay with that? Mm -hmm. What, when you're laying down in bed at night and you think about what you did today, are you worried about that? Do you feel okay with that? And if not, then you shouldn't be doing it. Mm. But, but it's so easy when it's like, oh, you're, you are getting a commission and it's tied to how many products you sell. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, we're going to communicate. If we go back to the cookies, these cookies are healthy for you. I want to sell more because I want to make more money. But it's not all about money. And that's what we try to communicate. Um, but when you get into the heat of the moment, it's hard. And- Especially nowadays to survive, right? Like I think that if we really think about what, what it means to sell a product, especially when there's so much out there. There's an element of survival attached. I actually do have a question related to that. Why is it that less religious-minded people tend to choose more sustainably-minded foods? And how is it possible to get more religious people to choose sustainable foods as well? Because I guess I'm trying to push my value of you know, caring about the environment or the earth. But why was that and why could that be? So I've actually done a lot of research on the relationship between religion and sustainability And a lot of it comes down to a change in priorities for people that are more religious. So less religious people, and especially we talk about atheists, they believe that this life is their only life and they need to preserve the earth for their future generations and for themselves. Um, When we start talking about more religious people, they believe usually that there's some kind of afterlife or something happens after they die 
and that the world is not going to necessarily exist forever. And so there are other priorities, such as whether it's converting other people to their religion, whether it's getting rid of all materialistic desires, whatever the particular religion is, there's things that are much more important than sustainability. And so that's a lot of times why we see that the atheists are more trending towards sustainable decision-making because that is a priority in their belief system. And so in order to emphasize sustainability, we have to go back to tying it to their specific religious values, whether that be saying that, okay, your divine creator gave you the, this planet to take care of, like you're, you have responsibility for this. If we phrase it as, no, like in other religions, a tree is, there's a God for the trees. There's a God for the river. And if you're destroying that, you're destroying a God. Mm-hmm. And so we just have to reframe the way that sustainability is referenced in something that incorporates their core values. A hundred percent. And I actually agree. I agree with that in, in a sense of, you know, I, I also am vegan, but I'm a I'm Muslim and this is a huge, I guess, I guess, struggle for me, especially when it comes to having these conversations with someone like my dad, who's also Muslim and eats meat and all that sort of stuff. Someone said this term to me, it's teleological thinking in a way of like, this is made for me. This is given to me for me by my God. And therefore I'm going to use it because he gave that to me to use. But whereas the way I see it is that if you read in texts and stuff, it sort of says, this is a responsibility I gave you. Yeah, you can use it if necessary, but it's not always necessary, especially in this day and age. So yeah, I I agree with you in that way as well. And I believe you are, you can correct me, Elizabeth, you're religious as well, right? And how do you tend to have those discussions with people who are in your church or around you about sustainability to them? Like, how do you kind of encourage them without pushing it on them. I mean, it just is what we just talked about of saying that this is a planet that's been given to us to care for and to steward. And so that's something that's important to take care of. And it's like a core value system of a lot of people is family and community. And that's mm-hmm. really important. If we think about like, we need like the whole like love your neighbor that whole idea is really encompassed in all religious affiliations in one way or another. And so if we are to do that, we are to have a planet that future generations are able to inhabit and enjoy and see just like we are. I just wanted to ask one more question, I guess, and it's more so about you. Do you think that everything that you know now through your studies and stuff, would you say you're quite immune to marketing? No, not at all. <laughs> so Still gets you. like... So there's point of purchase displays, which are like the the products we see on the end caps when you walk into the store rather than like walking down the aisle. Mm. And I, I go to the store and it's like, oh, macaroni and cheese. I haven't had that in a long time. I need some mac and cheese. Mm. And so after I went and bought mac and cheese, I'm like, I don't even like it. Why don't I just buy it? And so I, you know, in the moment, you still do it. Yeah. Emotional. It's, it's like, an emotional thing. Yeah, it's nostalgia. Mm, nostalgia yeah, is a huge is. one. We're not getting into that right now. No, that would be a huge <laughs> topic. But yeah, no, thank you so much for your time. It was uh, it was a whirlwind because we had to get through a lot in one. Absolutely. It was enjoyable talking to you both. And thanks for inviting me to be on here. No thank problems you. at all. <laughs> okay. See ya. Bye.